Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 16th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Patreon at slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. In fact, you can watch my entire course, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, for free. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to Harry's.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Welcome back, Ashore. It's good to be back. Thank you so much to Rebecca Watson, wherever you are in the internets, for stepping in for me. How's the festival coming along? It's going to be crazy busy, but in the best way possible. Uh, today, we announced uh, Dava Newman is going to be part of an event next uh, uh, next Friday. She's going to be interviewed by Adam Savage. That name is important because she's the number two at NASA. She's deputy administrator of NASA. And before that, she was a researcher in new spacesuit technology, a lot of which was modeled in The Martian. Wow, well, we'll have to have her on the show. I think we're going to. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, a couple things are happening this week, but especially I think people were listening to the debate between the Democratic candidates for president. And one thing caught my ear, and that was that the... That the, it was boring. <laughs> that it was super, super well, boring. Well, I'm not going to comment on that, <laughs> but, uh, but that they brought up gun violence. Absolutely. And that they weren't afraid to talk about it. And so I thought it was time for us to actually do a show about the science of gun violence. If we are going to have policymakers in the future in the White House that might actually 
make changes to our gun laws, then we should know what the science is that can inform them. So to that end, I interviewed Brad Bushman, who's the professor of communications and psychology at Ohio State and at VU University Amsterdam. He's also on President Obama's Committee on Gun Violence and the NSF Committee on Youth Violence, so he's familiar with speaking with policymakers. He's had over 175 peer-reviewed articles that have been cited over 25,000 times, so he really is a world expert in what the science says about gun violence. So that'll be our interview for today. I'm really excited about this interview, and it represents what we're trying to do with this show. But I'm also excited for it because there isn't a lot of research in this area. Funding has been restricted on a lot of research into this topic range. So kudos to you for landing this interview. You'd think. (laughs) But, you know, in my first preliminary look, there are a lot of studies out there that just aren't getting a lot of press. So I think it's time for us to cover it. And, uh, you know, I think some of the science is pretty well established. So, I, um, you know, that'll we'll, we'll talk about that later on the show today. Um, but first, what uh, drew your attention on the headlines this week? I think there's only one thing to talk about, and we're going to talk about Jeff Marcy. So even though this is airing on a Friday, we're recording this on a Wednesday. And uh, just about two hours ago, Jeff Marcy, uh, the exoplanet researcher at UC Berkeley, resigned following sort of a a week of tumult and uh, hailstorm that came out after UC Berkeley released a report indicating that he had been found to have sexually harassed a number of students over a period of a decade. You know, what really amazed me about this story is how quickly other scientists, you know, began to really bemoan the fact that Berkeley knew about this and didn't do about anything about it for for many, many years, that that people really started speaking out against Berkeley's actions, which which was news to me. It not only is uh, was it news to me, like seeing scientists step out about it, but it was also like how quickly it moved. Um, but it seemed reminiscent of a lot of things. And I'm going to cite something that I th- I cite every time I hear a story like this. A uh, friend of of mine and friend of the show, Maki Nero, who's a uh, sci- who's at Science Comic on Twitter. He's a uh, an incredible science communicator. Always tweets out the same comic he wrote years ago, and it's entitled "Famous Scientist Does Something Bad." And it follows the same script, like, "Oh, famous scientist does something bad." There's the talking heads that come out, and I'm finding it's the same people get really mad about it and and pitch a uh, pitch a storm. There's a not apology issued from somebody. Then uh, some famous journalistic article comes out that doesn't cover it the way that it probably should be. New York Times in this case, uh, with quotes for probably from his friends and and or wife that did happen here. Uh, we bemoan the fact that uh, this is indicative of, of the entire field of science. The university or research laboratory that the, uh, that the scientists associated with comes out with a not statement that very much happened in this case. There's a lot to be like it goes on and on. It we've been through this this cycle before. It's maddening, and uh, the only thing that uh, that sort of strikes me is. Is this cycle a sign of progress, that it's becoming familiar, that there is a sense that we're moving more quickly about this kind of stuff, that so many scientists came out and demanded that he be fired, a tenured professor that brings in $100 million or more in research funding? Is that progress? 
It doesn't feel like progress to me. Well, I mean, it did it did happen within a week, so it does it does feel fast. But you know, I agree with you that that there there's still obviously a fundamental problem here. But it's, is this unique to science? Is my question. As if it's is it, totally not unique to science. You know, it so, can't but, but you don't really hear about the business professor who you know has the, the same trajectory. I don't know. I, I guess maybe and maybe that's just because I pay more attention when it's a science professor. But it's also but. public institutions are involved here, where they have. I think there's more weight on them to publicly disclose this information than if this happened in the private sector. But functionally, it's still. I, it doesn't feel like progress when we're talking about a decade yeah. uh, that women were sexually harassed. It doesn't feel like progress. I know Jeff Marcy personally, like he's been part of the science festival before. It's been nothing but gracious to me. It makes it hurt all the more yeah. to see that that kind of uh, abuse happening. And it's hard to, to feel like progress is being made. I really encourage our listeners who are interested in this topic to go back and listen to the interview you conducted uh, about a year ago on sexual harassment in the field of science. With, with uh, Kate Clancy. Yeah. That was a, it was a difficult but a good conversation. Well, what caught my eye this week was a headline in the New York Times health section that said anorexia may be habit, not willpower, study finds. And that already was interesting to me because I had always considered people with anorexia to have the highest willpower, that in fact, it's willpower gone awry that actually is at the root of the disorder. And as I was reading the paper, I was delighted to find uh, that one of my closest friends, Karin Ferda, was the first author in the Nature paper that was published this week. Uh, outlining the this particular study. So um, I wanted to get Karin on the phone and talk to her about what she found. Karin is a research assistant professor at the psychology department at New York University and research scientist at the Division of Clinical Therapeutics in New York State's Psychiatric Institute and Columbia University. And her work is aimed at looking at how we form habits, how learning and memory works, and how that applies to things that we do in our daily life. And it's really interesting. So I invited Karin to come on the show to talk about her study, uh, which essentially was one of the first studies to demonstrate that what we think is going on in people with anorexia nervosa might actually not be what's happening. So here's the interview. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Karin Ferda. Hello. So this study was a surprise to me because most of the work that I know of uh, coming from your work and your lab is on habit learning. And all of a sudden, here you are looking at people with anorexia nervosa. So how did you come about um, applying some of your research to people with eating disorders? Yeah, so it may seem surprising, but actually, we are generally interested in how uh, different ways that people learn, how that might influence how they make choices. Uh, and it turns out that uh, anorexia nervosa is actually a, kind of an interesting case of this. And the reason that we would even come to know that is that we um, started collaborating with some clinical researchers who study um, eating disorders. And they actually were very interested in understanding why it is that uh, individuals with anorexia uh, seem to have so much trouble getting better. Uh, so to try to get a different way at understanding how it is that they continue to make these very maladaptive choices in when they try to make decisions about what to eat. And so it, it turns out that it's actually a very good marriage of sort of uh, deep questions from clinicians and something that we have started to understand better, which is how people make decisions based on different ways of learning. 
So my cursory understanding of what's happening in a person with anorexia until I read your paper was really that, you know, these are people who might have some kind of an emotional issue in their childhood that has led them to exert control over one behavior, which happens to be eating. And I would always think of them as people who have extreme willpower, the ability to restrict your eating to the point where, you know, it's actually life threatening, to me seems like the pinnacle of self control with respect to eating. Um, But your study is showing that maybe that's not the case. So let's just start first by by sort of examining where did this idea that anorexia nervosa is really, you know, an example of willpower and self control come from? Is that based on anything real? Or should we rethink the way that we, you know, think about these people in general? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So coming uh, from this as a cognitive neuroscientist and not really having a deep understanding of anorexia nervosa, I think that just by observing the type of behavior, which is uh, consistently restricting uh, your dietary intake, uh, avoiding high fat foods, choosing low fat foods, uh, that is something that most of us find incredibly difficult. Many people would like to be able to do that on a regular basis, and many people try to do that, and they fail uh, consistently. So I think everybody has the experience of trying to exert self-control in this uh, specific situation where you're choosing between, you know, the broccoli and the brownie, you know, what you should do, uh, but you end up doing something else. And then you see individuals with anorexia nervosa being able to do this for years and really to the point of starvation. Uh, and, and I think it's easy to conclude that, well, then they must just have amazing self-control. What happens, of course, is that, uh, if, if they actually had this exquisite self-control, you would think that once their goals changed, once they realized that this is eventually going to lead to starvation and, and potentially death, that they would want to choose their behavior. And in fact, the, the people that we studied, they've entered treatment. So they've recognized that they want to change their behavior, yet it's so entrenched and they can't change it. So that aspect of the behavior actually really uh, suggests that maybe something else is going on. And then the question is, well, what is that? And, and that's what we were interested in. So then what did you see in the brain that made you rethink this idea that anorexia is really about superior self-control and willpower? So one of the hypotheses uh, was that we might see activity in, uh, in neural systems that, that have been associated with habitual behavior uh, in the past. Although here I should, I should say that, of course, seeing brain activity that alone is not going to tell you exactly what kind of process is ongoing. But but what we're seeing is really something that at least is consistent with that idea. We were interested in frontostriatal circuits because these are circuits that have very consistently been implicated in uh, decision-making in many, many studies at this point. But there are sort of uh, multiple frontostriatal circuits and... um, that uh, in particular ventral circuits, so ventral striatum and also the ventromedial uh, portion of the prefrontal cortex have often been seen uh, correlated with decision-making when you're making sort of value-based decision-making in, in healthy individuals. And when we looked at those regions, we actually didn't find differences between the groups. 
but what we did find were differences in the in the dorsal uh, striatum. So we saw more activity correlated with active choices in the anorexics than in the healthy individuals. So what does that mean? That you think? I mean, I know there's you know the dorsal striatum has a, a lot of different roles that it plays in the brain, but in the context of this task, what do you think it means? So we think that it certainly is consistent with the idea that it might be related to uh, sort of more habitual behavior. But I think the more important thing that you can say is that this is a region that's been associated with action and action control and making active choices rather than just sort of a passive valuation. Now, the fact that it's it's consistent with something that we think might be associated with habitual behavior uh, really more potentially provides us with a target. So now we can sort of ask the question, well, this is consistent with something being a habit, but then we really have to do the experiments to actually test that uh, particular hypothesis. So it at least puts it out there as really a, just a first step in in a series of experiments that you would want to do to test this idea. So well, I think what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that this is the first step along uh, the lines of thinking about anorexia really as a series of entrenched habits. And the longer you suffer from the condition, the more entrenched the habits are, therefore, the more difficult it is to treat. And that treatment should really focus not simply on, you know, reevaluating their evaluation of food, but rather on changing the habit of always choosing, choosing the low fat food. Is, is, is that a fair interpretation of the work. Yeah, it certainly it suggests that as as you know an important possibility and you're really in a situation where getting new ideas and trying new things would be quite useful because what's currently uh, being used is not really working well. Well, I just want to let our listeners know uh, that your paper has been provided uh, free of charge by Nature. Uh, you can find it at nature.com. It's called Neural Mechanisms Supporting Maladaptive Food Choices in Anorexia Nervosa. Congrats on the paper, Karin, and thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really surprised to hear this is about habit and behavior um, more so than an actual sort of cognitive issue. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us for a long time thought about anorexia as coming from, you know, a body image problem, right? That the person has a sort of cognitive framework that they with which they see the world and that that colors all of their choices and so forth. But Karin's work, and again, it's not, it's just the first study in, in probably what is going to be a large body of work to come, really shows that maybe we are, we need to rethink this idea and think of it more as maybe that's how the habit started in the beginning, you know, through some kind of change in which the way that they were seeing the world and themselves, but that the entrenchment of the disorder really comes from years and years and years of habit formation. So, um, you know, to me, I think the, the most impressive part of this work is that it actually has a new direction for treatment. As Karin mentioned, there aren't any really effective treatments for anorexia. And so if they can rethink the way that anorexia actually works in the brain in terms of habits, then maybe they can find better ways of treating it. So hopefully we'll have an update in, in about a year's time when more studies come out about this. Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, Karin's got her work cut out for her. <laughs> but if anyone can do it, she can. So let's take a short break and come back with my interview with Brad Bushman. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. 
They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, the Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and Inquiring Minds. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. What I like most about those razors is they seem to be just as good, if not better, than the best store-bought razors that I've ever bought, but they look way better on my vanity. Their starter set is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I personally like the foaming. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Brad Bushman. Thank you. So I've often heard the cliche, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, but then I recently came across a study that's actually quite old, all the way back from 1967, that actually suggests that, in fact, the presence of guns makes people more likely, perhaps, to kill other people. So I wanted to start there. Can you tell us about the Berkowitz study of aggression way back in 1967? Yeah, sure. And uh, let me begin by reading a quote that he has that's fantastic. By the way, he's my academic grandfather, so he's my advisor's advisor. And I actually nominated him for an uh, honorary doctor degree at The Ohio State University, which he received uh, in 2013. So uh, Berkowitz said, um, guns not only permit violence, they can stimulate it as well. The finger pulls the trigger, but the trigger may also be pulling the finger. It's a very provocative uh, study, very interesting uh, study. Um, first, he uh, had participants uh, by the flip of a coin were either angered or not by another person who is pretending to be another participant. Scientists call them confederates. And then participants were seated at a table and uh, the experimenter said, oh, I told that other experimenter to clean up after himself. I can't believe he left his stuff on the table again. Uh, just ignore this. Uh, and and uh, But on the table was either a shotgun and a pistol, or uh, in the control condition, there were badminton rackets and shuttlecocks. And there's also a, uh, another control condition with nothing on the table at all. And the measure of aggression was the intensity of shock participants were willing to give the confederate who had previously angered them or not. And what he found is just the mere presence of a rifle and pistol on this table uh, made uh, participants give more intense uh, and a greater number of electric shocks 
to the Confederate, especially if the Confederate had angered them. There's no difference between uh, the sports items and no items at all. And uh, Berkowitz called this uh, the weapons effect. So are you saying that if there's a gun, I might, you know, choose to shock the person who angered me at an 8 out of 10 level. Um, But if there's a badminton rocket, I might only choose to shock them at a 6 out of 10 level. But if they don't anger me, I'm still more likely to give them a bigger shock in the presence of a gun. I mean, I understand if someone, you know, angers you and you you have an aggressive reaction, that it might be heightened by the presence of a violent instrument. But even when people were not angered by the Confederate, was there also an effect of the mere presence of the pistols? Well, in this study, there wasn't a big effect, but we recently reviewed every study conducted on uh, the weapons effect. We found over 50 studies, uh, and in these studies, there were almost 5,000 participants. And we found the effect was uh, slightly larger when people were angered, but you still found the weapons effect even when people were not angered. And is this exclusive to guns or are there any any weapon would cause that kind of an increase? Yeah, we all uh, we coded um, in our meta analysis. Uh, meta analysis, by the way, is a quantitative literature review. So it's a, a review of the statistical results of all studies conducted on a topic and we aggregate and combine them. And in our uh, meta analysis, we looked at that and the effects were found for other weapons as well. And they were even Uh, we found effects uh, with toy guns in studies involving uh, children. So any object that can be used as a weapon to harm others, just the mere presence of that object can increase aggression. Hmm. So I'm the mother of a you know, two-year-old boys, almost two. And I've been counseled by other parents that at some point he's going to want to play with a toy gun and it's going to be everywhere. And if I don't give him a gun, he's just going to use a spoon and make it look like a gun. And that I should just, you know, think of it as part of his natural way of exploring the world. Um, Does science back that up or is that just a myth? No, absolutely not. Uh, Let him use the um, spoon and then encourage him to eat yogurt or something instead with it. But no, uh, there, there's no scientific evidence to indicate that that's harmless. Uh, and, and in studies involving children, just the mere presence of a weapon can increase aggression, even if the children do, don't play with the gun, even if it's just sitting on the table, it will make them more aggressive. And I think this has important implications. Maybe their parents own guns. And, you know, in in American homes, I think 39% of homes uh, with children, uh, the parents do own guns, but they should put those guns um, in opaque uh, containers or lock them up, uh, separate them from the ammunition like the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, recommends. But some people like display the guns in glass cabinets. And that's a really bad idea because research shows just the mere presence of guns can increase aggression. Can I tell you about a really cool study that tried to uh, see if this weapons effect existed outside the laboratory? Yeah. Um, uh, in the, in this study, a Confederate who was pretending uh, who 
participants didn't know was part of the study was driving a pickup truck. And in the uh, pickup truck, there was uh, on the back window for uh, some of the participants was a gun rack and a military rifle in the gun rack. And for other participants, the gun rack was empty. There was nothing uh, there. And then the Confederate pulled up to a traffic light. And when the light turned green, the Confederate just stayed there. And researchers measured um, aggressive behavior from the motorist trapped behind the Confederate in terms of, you know, what did did uh, the motorist behind the Confederate honk their horn? And uh, the study found that like half the people who saw the Confederate driving a pickup truck with a military rifle in the back window honked their horn compared to about, uh, I don't know, 20 to 30 percent in um, the control condition where there is no gun. But if you th- think about that, you'd have to be a complete idiot to honk your horn at a driver that has a military rifle in their uh, back window. And that's the power of the weapons effect. People don't think about it. Uh, guns are automatically associated with violence and aggression. And in fact, uh, some research suggests that people respond just as quickly to the sight of guns as they do to the sight of uh, spiders and snakes. And from an evolutionary perspective, we know that we're sort of hardwired to pay attention to spiders and snakes because some spiders are poisonous and some snakes are poisonous. And our ancient ancestors who didn't pay attention to this uh, died and didn't pass on their uh, genes. But it's really fascinating to me that people uh, respond just as quickly to guns as they do to spiders and snakes. Even though there's no evolutionary explanation for that, it suggests that in the human mind, there's a very strong link between uh, guns and uh, violence and aggression. Can I tell you about one more study? Yeah, sure. Okay. I was just um, going to say that next time, you know, somebody annoys me on the road, I'm going to have to think to myself, this might be a social psychology study. So be nice. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, that's doesn't give right. you guys such a good name. But yeah, go on. What's the, what's the other study? Yeah. Uh, so this is a really important study. Uh, it involved a nationally representative sample of over 2,000 American drivers. And the researchers found that drivers who ha- had a gun in their car, they weren't holding it, it was just in their car, were significantly more aggressive drivers than uh, those who had no gun in their car. They were more likely to make obscene gestures at other motorists, uh, 23% versus 16%. They're more likely to aggressively follow and uh, tailgate other vehicles, 14% versus 18%, uh, or both. And this is even after the researchers controlled for many other factors related to aggressive driving, such as gender, age, urbanization, census region, driving frequency, what have you. Um, Just the mere presence of a gun in uh, the car made uh, drivers more aggressive. In one of your papers, you mentioned that there are like 50 replications of the original weapons effect, which just is mind boggling to me, given that I feel like I just learned about it a couple of weeks ago when, you know, when I was looking for someone to interview on the science of gun violence and I you know, came across your work. It's just remarkable that there isn't that this isn't just old news the way so many other psychological and social psychology findings are. And, you know, you also mentioned in one of your 
writings that maybe that part of the reason why the these findings just don't get more attention or just aren't remembered by people, you know, is because there is a hostile reaction from people who who own and collect guns um, when this kind of work is reported. So, you know, in fact, you talk about sometimes you get terrible hate mail from people who own guns. And, you know, in some ways that that just feeds into this idea of of guns being associated with aggressive behavior. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think in our uh, I told you in our meta-analysis, we found over 50 studies uh, and they included almost 5,000 participants. So this is a very robust uh, finding. And I think it's really important to point out that we're talking about just the mere presence of a weapon. Nobody's holding it. Nobody's pointing it at anybody. Nobody's pulling the trigger, just seeing a gun. Uh, I also do a lot of research on violence in the media. And for example, we did an analysis of the amount of gun violence in box office movies, the top 30 movies uh, every year. And uh, what we found is um, the PG-13 rating was introduced in 1985, and that rating is for viewers uh, 13 and older. And what we found is since that rating was introduced in 1985, the amount of gun violence in violent and PG-13 movies has more than tripled. And in fact, uh, PG-13 movies today contain significantly more gun violence than R-rated uh, movies uh, do, which I think would surprise many parents. So there's a, another very large body of research showing that exposure to violent media, whether it be uh, violent television programs, films, video games, can also increase aggressive behavior. So I do want to talk about some of those uh, data because, you know, I sort of have this impression, general impression of either the way the media reported the literature or, or what I learned, you know, as a grad student and so forth, that that the effect of playing violent video games really isn't that big in terms of people's aggressive behavior. Um, but are you saying that that's not an accurate reading of the literature? It's definitely not an accurate reading of the literature. We did another meta-analysis on every study conducted on violent video games. We found 381 effects from uh, studies involving over 130,000 uh, participants, so a very large body of literature. And the results uh, consistently showed that playing violent video games uh, makes players more aggressive and also makes them numb to the pain and suffering of others. It desensitizes them. The effects occur for males and females of all ages, uh, regardless of where they live in the world. So uh, there, there are very uh, robust effects for violent media as well. Hmm. And it seems as though there is a rise or an increase in, in sort of people playing video games uh, these days, particularly now as the technology is improving and these video games can be much more immersive. Um, I, do you worry about, you know, the, the sort of, you know, when, when we can start looking at video games through virtual reality lenses and actually acting out uh, some of the aggressive acts that our characters are doing? Do you worry that that's going to result in more aggressive behavior in the real world? 
Yeah, we actually have some data on this very topic. In a study uh, my former PhD student Bobby Lowell and I conducted, participants were randomly assigned to play Grand Theft Auto either in a violent way. We gave them unlimited weapons, unlimited ammunition, and told them to kill as many people as they possibly could, or we gave them. Uh, unlimited quarters, put them in a bowling alley, and told them to get the highest score they possibly could. And they played this、uh, game either on a desktop computer or、uh, on a huge、uh, screen, maybe、uh, six feet by eight feet. And they either did that in two D or、uh, in three D. And then afterwards, we measured how angry、uh, they were, and what we found is that participants they played exactly the same game, but if they played it on a big screen in 3D, they were a lot more angry than if they played exactly the same game、uh, on a big screen in 2D or on a desktop、uh, computer. And we also measured immersion, and what we found is. As you mentioned before, that these virtual reality、uh, techniques, large screens, 3D images, immerse people in the violence, and we found higher levels of immersion, both、uh, in the violent and non-violent conditions. People who played a video game on a big screen in 3D were immersed in the game, more immersed in the game, but only those who played、uh, the violent game reported feeling、uh, more angry afterwards. But you know, I've I've also heard that okay, so people play these video games as an outlet. They have、uh, some aggression they need to get out, and anger they need to vent. They can get it out on the video game, and that means that it's over. That makes them sort of happier, more calm people in the rest of their lives, and so they're less likely to you know go and shoot up a college campus. Is do the data support that view? No. <laughs> that's、uh, that's known as、uh, catharsis theory, and there's actually not a shred of scientific evidence、uh, to support it. Of course, it's better to shoot、uh, pixels in a video game than to shoot a real person. The important question, though, is whether playing a violent video game increases or decreases aggressive tendencies. And I just told you、uh, we did a meta-analysis of 381 effects from studies involving over 130,000 participants that clearly showed that playing violent video games、uh, does not release pent-up tension, does not make people less angry and less aggressive. In fact, it has the opposite effect. It increases aggressive thoughts. It increases angry feelings. It also increases physiological arousal, such as heart rate and blood pressure.、Uh, when you play a violent game, everybody's trying to kill you. This is not a calming、uh, a thing. And、uh, a, and most important, it increases aggressive behavior. It decreases feelings of empathy and compassion for others, and it decreases pro-social、uh, behavior. Once again, we found the effects for males and females of all ages,、uh, regardless of where they lived in the world. So catharsis theory sounds、uh, good, but there's not a shred of scientific evidence to support it. 
But there is a, a number of scientists, there are a number of, number of scientists who are working on creating video games that would increase pro-social behavior, that actually would help people develop more empathy, um, reduce stereotyping, help people get over their biases. Do you think that there is a chance that games can be created in which uh, people can show positive effects on behavior? Or do you think that, you know, it's, it's negative or nothing? No, absolutely. The media are a tool. You can use any tool for good or ill. And we've actually done some of that research in our lab. And we found, in fact, that playing pro-social video games when you help others increases uh, pro-social behavior, such as cooperation and helping, and decreases aggressive uh, behavior. In fact, uh, my colleagues and I recently developed an app for children four years and older. It's free on Android or uh, iTunes uh, stores. Uh, it's called the Random App of Kindness. And uh, we want to uh, use the media to increase uh, feelings of empathy and compassion for others rather than increase uh, angry feelings and aggressive impulses. So one of the driving reasons why you know I wanted to talk about this uh, topic this week is, of course, we, we've just heard about another a series of uh, shootings on college campuses. And it made me wonder, is it just that I hear more commonly about shootings on college campuses that result in, you know, death and injury? Or are college campuses more likely to be the scenes of uh, gun violence that results in, you know, mass casualties in the U.S.? You know, can you speak at all to whether this is something that is, you know, yeah, related to college campuses and why that might be, or if that's just the availability heuristic in my mind doing its job? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, being in a school is about the safest place you could possibly be. And uh, it's much more dangerous to cross the street to go to go to a school than actually be in a school. Of course, these uh, school shootings are tragic. You know, the most recent data I have from the National Center for Education Statistics shows that uh, for, you know, children like 5 to 17 years old, they're, you know, over 130,000 schools and over 55 million kids attend these schools. And they go to school and come home every day and almost nothing happens to any of them. And for college students, there are, you know, over 7,000 uh, colleges and uh, over 21 million college students go to college and come home every day. Uh, without anything happening. But uh, when there is a school shooting, it seems like the the shooter does uh, select a public location, whether it be a school or a movie theater or a shopping mall to target, you know, a condensed, highly populated area to target as many um, innocent people as, as possible. So, uh, you know, it's tra when these happen, they're uh, tragic. But the truth is, you know, being in a school is one of the safest places you could possibly be. And yet a lot of people are killed by guns every day. And most of these, whether they're accidents or intentional shootings, you know, happen all over the country. So and that seems to be, you know, I see all, all kinds of statistics about how many, many more people die from gun violence in the U.S. than in a lot of other westernized countries. Is that true? And, you know, is there anything 
other than the mere presence of the the mere the mere fact that we have more guns in this country than a lot of other countries do you do you, do you really think that that is driving the correlation or do you think that there's another explanation yeah, well, we do know that uh, the amount of gun violence in the United States is about 20 times higher on average than most other wealthy countries. So there, there is a, a big difference. And we also know there's a very strong negative uh, correlation between gun safety laws and gun-related deaths, you know, um, the go-to source for information about gun-related deaths is the loss, some law center. I can't remember the exact name. I can, uh, I'll send it to you. Um, but I, I um, personally analyzed the data on that uh, website, and it has the uh, gun laws for every state in the United States and also the number of gun-related deaths. And I computed the correlation between the number of uh, gun laws and the number of gun-related deaths. And I found a, a negative correlation, minus 0.7, between um, gun-related laws and gun-related uh, deaths. And if you square a correlation, it gives you the percent of variance explained. Uh, so gun-related uh, laws explain over 51% of the variance in gun-related deaths. Uh, in comparison, the correlation between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer is 0.4. If you square that, you get uh, 0.16 or 16%. So cigarettes explain 16% of the variance in lung cancer. Um, so there's a very strong relation between gun uh, safety laws and gun-related deaths. Actually, 2015 uh, will be the first time in U.S. history when gun-related deaths outnumber traffic-related deaths. Um, of course, we didn't ban cars when traffic-related deaths went up, but we did a lot to make them safer. We uh, required drivers to have insurance. We uh, put in seat belts. If there were kids or infants in the car, we put in uh, car seats for them, uh, made, the, made the glass out of better material, uh, made the cars uh, stronger, had uh, s speed limits, and so forth to uh, reduce uh, accidents due to um, driving automobiles, and it worked. And um, those have been on the decline for quite a long time. And in 2015, uh, for the first time, gun-related deaths in America will exceed traffic-related deaths. And when you talk about the variability, you know, explained by differences in gun laws, you mean across different states, that is like states that have yes. fewer regulations yes. on guns will then have a yes. larger purport, you know, yeah, number of gun-related deaths. Yeah, that's correct. And of course, within uh, states, there are, um, you know, cities may differ in their laws within a state. So it's not a per, you know, it's not a perfect comparison. And of course, we'll never know whether gun ownership causes violent criminal behavior because you can't randomly assign people to own or not own guns and then see what they do with them. Uh, just like we'll never know whether smoking cigarettes 
causes lung cancer because you can't randomly assign people to smoke or not smoke cigarettes and then see whether they get lung cancer. Except in countries like Switzerland where everybody owns a gun if they're in the military, right? <laughs> yeah, but I think there's very strict laws and regulations uh, associated with um, gun ownership there. Yep, yep, that's right. So you are on the President's Committee on Gun Violence and on the NSF Committee on Youth Violence. So you're, you're aiding our policymakers in terms of developing policies. You know, how, how do you feel that's going? Do you think that there is some hope that the science will bleed down into the policy in the, in the next couple of years? Or do you still see this as, you know, spinning wheels? Yeah, I hope so. I think the best uh, hope for the future of this country uh, rests in scientific research and in education. And it troubles me sometimes when I see sort of an anti-science mentality uh, in this country. But, you know, we need to stop relying on hunches, gut feelings, intuition, common sense, instincts, premonitions. And instead, we need to turn to the scientific data and base our beliefs, decisions, policies on scientific evidence. Well, I think you've got a lot of our listeners nodding in agreement. So I think that's a great note (laughs) on which we should end. Brad Bushman, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. So sure, I learned a lot in that interview. What did you think? I was a little surprised by the comments on video games. I thought there was ample research indicating that it didn't induce violence by playing a lot of video games. Well, I think, oh, okay, so there are two things here. First of all, I, I'm with you on that front that I did, th- I, that was my impression too, and that's why I sort of asked him about it straight out. And I do think that we want to differentiate violence from aggression, right? So I think we can, you know, how do we measure aggressive behaviors? You know, in general, it's not like some kid punches another kid. Um, in general, you know, it's going to be some kind of measure of how angry you are at the end of, you know, the, the, the trial and so forth. So, you know, there is some question as to, you know, how effective these measures of aggression are at sort of predicting behavioral outcomes, which, of course, in the case of violence, are going to be much more rare. And, Certainly, there are studies out there that show that only certain kids with certain types of personalities, um, you know, or, you know, sort of uh, people, kids that have trouble, you know, uh, controlling their impulses and so forth might be more likely to show a negative effect of playing video games um, or, or kids that have underlying mental health issues. Um, whereas other kids who are generally calm by nature, you know, tend to show either a much smaller effect or no effect at all. Um, and so I actually went back and asked I uh, sent an email to to Brad to ask him to clarify, you know, his stance on this. And he sent me um, a couple of meta-analyses that he had done himself in which he shows that there actually is a fairly good consensus in the literature. And, you know, so again, I think, I think how you measure aggression is going to affect whether or not you find an effect, how much video game playing you're doing, what kinds of video games. Obviously, you know, he talked about how you can have pro-social games that really don't show um, and actually show, show a positive effect. Uh, so I think that... You know, my reading of of what he's saying, what his work has shown, and in general, um, sort of what the consensus in the psychology literature shows is that there is an effect, it's there, and, um, you know, we should should know about it, but the extent to which any given individual, you know, is going to be affected by playing video games, 
That's it, still up in the air. At the end of the day, I think the video game piece is like is the one that stuck out to me and I think is going to stick out to a lot of people just because of the the prevalence of it and just the the trope of that of remembering those 90s, you know, congressional hearings about it. But I think at the the more important part of your discussion with him is really just about the presence of guns is makes yeah. aged. And it's that, not even also- it's not even about like how they're sort of framed, like responsible household doesn't make a difference here. Yeah, no, I mean, he was just saying like even a gun that nobody's touching, it's just on the table, you know, makes people more aggressive to one another, you know, essentially in that first Berkowitz study from 1967, where people like would ramp up the electric shock that they were willing to give, you know, the Confederate was modulated, at least in part on the presence of a gun. And the other thing that really struck me too, is, you know, his reading of the data of gun laws in different states, and, you know, his finding of this very strong correlation between the number of gun laws and the number of gun related deaths. And, you know, the, the obviously that that's the, the correlation that he found was stronger than the correlation between smoking and lung cancer. And, you know, as he, as as anyone can point out, correlation does not equal causation. Um, but you need a correlation, it's a necessary condition for there to be causation. So it might not be sufficient, but it's certainly necessary. I think I'm going to give this a second listen because I've never fired a real gun in my life, but I've fired a lot of Nerf and video game guns in my life. (laughs) Well, if you come back much more aggressive, we'll know why. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, Sean Johnson, Nick Cadillac, and Herring Cheng. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your favorite violent video games or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, photography, as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by video gamer Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith, all the way from England. Welcome to England, Caitlin. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontes. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.